Today is 11-14-2021. We are reading from the big book of AA, uh, pages 35. Uh, Rob R. will be our reader, followed by a 20-minute share uh, from Wendy S. from New York. and we will begin on page 35, beginning with our first example is a friend to and including page 37 in some circumstances. Okay, uh, and we will have a, a 20 minute share, as I said, uh, by Wendy S. once Rob R. completes his reading. All right, Rob R., please. Thank you, Michael. Good morning, everyone. My name is Rob. I'm a compulsive overeater. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable world war record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He is an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family, for whom he had a deep affection. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar, for I had been going to it for years. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, 
Yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? You may think this an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. That's the end of the reading. Thanks for letting me be of service. Thank you, Rob, for your reading and your service. And um, I'm uh, very excited and privileged to introduce our speaker, uh, Wendy S. from New York. Uh, will share uh, her insights, uh, her experience, her strength, her hope. Uh, Wendy, uh, please, uh, would you like uh, a, a, a 15 and a uh, 15 and a five minute uh, warning? Would that be um, helpful? I could do, uh, yeah, 15 minutes, yeah. Okay, all right. Or 50, I mean a 20 and a five is usually, I'm sorry, <laughs> but whatever you'd like. <laughs> the 15 and the, the 15 is a, a slightly yeah. more expensive option, but uh, whatever you'd like. 15 is good. I got my okay. timer too. So. All right. Okay. <laughs> thank you. And now I'll be quiet. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Kim, for asking me to speak today and for everyone uh, here that's doing service. Um, it's so helpful to me and, and to all of us. So good morning, everyone, or well, or good afternoon or evening for wherever you are in the world. Um, I am Wendy S. from Woodstock, New York. I am a compulsive overeater and remarkably living in a recovered state today. Um, my quick little qualification is uh, my disease manifested in like volume and binge eating and excessive weight. Um, so I came to program uh, just a little bit under a year and a half ago. And on Thursday, just celebrated 11 months of abstinence, um, which I did not think was possible. <laughs> So um, let me just dive into the reading. We're talking about Jim today. Um, and it says in the previous paragraphs that I guess we read last week um, that uh, we're describing the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. 
Um, and to be honest, I can't speak from the place of relapse because I'm a baby in this program. Um, I, uh, you know, but I, but I can definitely, like, I've never been recovered before, um, but I am now, and I can definitely talk about the mental states that um, got me to come into this program and led me to succumb to compulsively shoveling food in my mouth time and time and time again, um, knowing how painful it was and uh, even knowing, you know, the times that I, that I wanted to do it on purpose and the times that I didn't want to do it and had no control. Um, <clears throat> so what does a 51 year old single woman with an eating disorder in the 21st century have in common with 30 something married war veteran with an alcohol problem from 80 years ago? Um, <laughs> and, uh, it starts with, um, like Jim, I come from a decent family background. It was a safe environment. Um, I had all my physical needs met. Uh, I'm pretty well liked. I have good friendships and relationships. I'm usually the person that people come to for advice and comfort. Um, I'm also fairly intelligent. <laughs> I have uh, some graduate and postgraduate education. Um, so, you know, pretty normal. Uh, except for this nervous disposition thing, which I always love reading. And I have no idea what Jim's nervous disposition was, um, but I know what mine is. Uh, I, I'm, I was painfully shy as a child and um, still kind of am in a room full of 150 people that are listening to every word I say and staring at me. Um, and uh, I also, I'm highly, highly sensitive, like a lot of other um, people that are in this program. Um, I'm hyper vigilant, so lots of anxiety, always kind of looking around for the next shoe to drop kind of thing. Uh, and I have a tendency towards depression. Um, and this is, you know, the time of year when my depression really hits, when the days are getting shorter and the clocks change and it feels like midnight and it's only five o'clock. Um, and I just want to isolate, curl up under a blanket, hibernate until it passes. Um, and the last few weeks, actually, this last month has been uh, particularly problematic for me um, because it was compounded by a tragic death in my community. Um, so <clears throat> as it talks about in the last paragraph that um, Rob just read for us, um, these are justifications that, you know, I would use to deliberately go to the store and fill up a shopping cart with every single thing I could possibly think of to want to eat um, and go home, sit alone and in the house until every crumb was gone. You know, despite the pain in my stomach and the cramps in my stomach, uh, the, the ache in my jaw from chewing so much, um, despite being so overstuffed. Um, and then it would, you know, and knowing that it would lead to an even worse depression um, that would inevitably come from the shame and self-hatred of having done this again for the umpteenth time. Um, and I love how I heard someone in program once talk about this as, you know, these are the symptoms of a spiritual illness. Um, 
uh, all of these, uh, where are they? Nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. Um, <clears throat> which kind of brings me back to the first page where Jim, it says Jim felt enlarge his spiritual life. So I have to ask myself, what does that even mean <laughs> to enlarge my spiritual life? And what I've learned um, from this program is, you know, for me, it's not about joining or recommitting to an organized religion. It's not about memorizing and reciting a bunch of different prayers. Um, it's not about scheduling a set time in the day for me to sit in quiet reflection and meditation and prayer, you know, on my knees or in like yoga position, which I've done in the past. Um, uh, for me, from this, from learning from this program, it really is living in steps 10, 11, and 12. It's committing to and doing the work outlined in these steps on a regular basis so that I can develop and, um, and nourish a conscious, intimate relationship to a power beyond myself. And this power is like the basis for the ideals that I need in order for me to live a healthy, happy life. Um, and in the beginning, yes, I needed to schedule pretty much every moment of my time. And I needed to take direction from my sponsor and from every person on a podcast that I heard uh, and from all the people in program that told me I had to do certain things a certain way. Um, and it, that was important for me also, like, you know, to do all these things that I didn't like or wouldn't have chosen to do on my own. Um, but I did because I wanted what these other people had. And I had spent at least 40 years of my life in this, you know, suffering with this disease. Um, and I just couldn't take it anymore. Couldn't take it. Um, so, um, yeah, as, as I, as I did that work, like it, it, like the, the scheduling became more innate. It wasn't that I had to put it down on my calendar and, um, and, uh, you know, all the, 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 um, oh, the direction that I took didn't come from like these old beliefs, uh, and belief patterns and ideas that, you know, were from my own accord. Like they kind of came through me instead of from others. Um, so now I was able to actually make it through this last month, experiencing my feelings and feeling my feelings of grief. And then, you know, the general malaise while still functioning as a fairly normal human being. Um, I was able to stay in connection with people. I was able to speak honestly and openly about my feelings. I answered the phone when it rang. Um, I made plans with people and went out, even though, you know, I had these feelings of, I'd rather just, you know, stay home and be quiet and alone and eat um, to make me feel better, which never really did. Um, and, you know, and I also had questions um, about, you know, 
you know, should I actually be a sponsor at this point? Because I'm feeling so miserable and sad. And, you know, what kind of positive things do I have to say to someone? Because, you know, I have to be on all the time. Um, and the truth is, like, I kept working with my sponsees. And I think I had some even like, more beautiful and incredible conversations and connections, because I actually got to learn from myself <laughs> or from whatever was coming through me when I would talk to them um, about what was going on for them. So, um, you know, and that's that's kind of what, what living in 10, 11, and 12 is for me. It's about really like taking stock, paying attention to how I feel, um, you know, writing, writing the wrongs and, and just staying connected with, um, with this power greater than me and with others. So, um, and, you know, and when I was having those thoughts and feeling those feelings, like I knew this was the time for me to, to really double down on my steps um, and on my step work. So, um, okay, let me go back. Uh, oh, one of, one of my favorite parts of Jim's story is, you know, where, where he says he felt irritated with his boss um, and they had words, but it was nothing serious. And, you know, like for real, <laughs> your words with your boss and it's nothing serious. Here he was the owner of this company that like he, he was inherited and he lost it because of his disease. So it's not a big deal that they had words. Um, yeah, not in my world. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but the thing is also, um, I was the queen of no biggie. I was the queen of like easy going, no big deal. I'm chill. It's okay. You know, whatever. Like I have, you know, anxiety is my natural state. I don't know when things are bothering me until the, you know, until much, much, much later on, way after the fact. Um, and what I learned in this program is that like my first thought <laughs> is almost always negative, either about myself or about you. So either like I've got it going on and you don't measure up or you've got it going on and I don't measure up. And more often than not, both scenarios are playing out at the exact time, which, you know, makes me absolutely insane. Um, and, you know, not, and, and not have the ability to think straight. And um, I know like for me, so I had a, a what's really interesting, what, what happened recently, I had a, um, a weekly call with a girlfriend um, <clears throat> and we, at early in the morning and we, either I would call her or she would call me, me and she's going through some tough times and I guess we were supposed to talk last week and um, I called her and she didn't answer, but she texted me and said, oh, I'm really sorry. I can't. I'm busy. Something's going on. Um, someone was over and <laughs> and I was like, oh, OK. So there was that part of me, that like initial feeling in my body where I felt like, hmm okay, there's the, the, a bit of the ouch of, oh, she's blowing me off. And a bit of like, wow, I was looking forward to talking to her and, and, and having this conversation. But then, you know, it quickly dissipated. Whereas in the past, it would have just like 
you know, that little itty bitty seed would have just like built up and built up and built up sort of like, you know, where Jim was going when, you know, I didn't have an issue having words with my boss, but then I went, you know, to this restaurant and, you know, then suddenly thought maybe I should eat something. So if I don't pay attention to that little seed of, oh, she's blown me off, you know, that's where it can lead. And I don't know how long it's going to take before it goes there, but I know that it's going to go there. Um, and what I got to do instead in this program was like, see it notice it for what it was, like pay attention to it, do a quick little inventory, recognize that, you know, I, if I were in that position, I would do the same thing. And I would hope that I would, would call beforehand and say, hey, listen, I'm not gonna be able to make it tomorrow morning. But, you know, it, if it's a last minute thing, it's not necessarily gonna happen. So, you know, instead of me blowing it out of proportion, which I have a tendency to do, and then in my mind deciding this is not a friend worth my time, and I'm going to, you know, push her away and keep her at arm's length and, you know, have all these negative thoughts, but, you know, smile on the outside and be pleasant and, you know, pretend I care, um, you know, to really look in and deal with my shit, pardon my French, sorry, um, and, uh, and then I was able to really feel like, oh, awesome. I hope she actually is having a great time. Here's, a, you know, a good friend of mine. And yes, I'll speak to her again. And I look forward to talking to her the next time that I get the opportunity to talk to her. Um, and, you know, and I don't have to make up this story that she's like an inconsiderate person that's uh, not worthy of being my friend. So um, here's your five minute warning. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Appreciate that. So, um, yeah, so there's, you know, there's so many scenarios like in my life where I could, where I've gone to that place of, you know, suddenly the thought came to my mind. Um, and, it, you know, and I just think about the progression of my disease where like suddenly the thought came to my mind was so much earlier on that in the last, I don't know how many years, um, you know, it was definitely deliberate. Like I knew it was happening and I couldn't stop it. It was more of, of that. And I, and I also liked, you know, how he, how he says, I vaguely sense I was not being any too smart. Um, and, you know, I, I get that vague sense all the time. And I love that this program has gotten me to recognize that vague sense and make it less vague, <laughs> make it more conscious and more available to me so that I could actually really be honest and look at it um, and not let it get to the point where I am, you know, in this like desperate, <laughs> state of, of relapse and clawing my way back to the surface to try to find my way out of it. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, it, it, going back to the, the last half, the last half of my disease was where it was deliberate, where I would have the thought in my head and I knew it was there and I knew I didn't want to eat. I did, you know, I, I tell the story, I, um, I used to work in the city downtown and it was like a 40 minute subway ride um, to uh, back to my apartment. And there's a McDonald's on the corner near my apartment. And there was no way to get around 
passing the McDonald's to get to my apartment. And the entire 40 minute subway ride from work, I would be thinking, I do not want to go to McDonald's the entire time. You know, as I'm walking out of the subway, as I'm walking down the road, as I'm walking into the freaking restaurant, if you want to even call it that, as I'm ordering and the whole time I'm like, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this. And I go home and I like, you know, eat the whole thing and I'm sick to my stomach and it's just a horrible situation. But so many times where that happened um, and I just felt completely, completely powerless um, and unable to do anything about it that it got to the point where I went to the place of screw it. You know, I'm just, I have to try to be fat and happy and just like eat what I want and it's going to be good. And I don't have to worry about um, dieting or, or, or my body anymore. And then, um, and that worked or didn't work for a number of years (laughs) until, um, until it got to the point where, I, yeah, I could no longer stand it. I was actually, um, you know, it was the middle of the pandemic and I had perfected sourdough bread for the first time, which made me really happy. Um, and I also knew I, I ate the entire thing in one sitting and that was not okay. And I decided, all right, now I'm going to do a juice cleanse. So I'm on this 10 day juice cleanse and three days before it was over, I had a panic attack that oh my gosh, I have to go back to eating food. And I know I can't, I can't handle it. It's going to kill me. Um, and, you know, and that's when, you know, I, I finally was open to a friend of mine who was my Abby and showed me um, the way <laughs> to, to go to OA and check it out. And, um, and it was hard in the beginning. I didn't like the book. I didn't like what I was reading. I, you know, it's from 80 years ago. These people don't speak my language. You know, I'm not a a God person. I'm not a religious person. This is not cool. Um, And, you know, I was also at the point where I I would do anything, even though I was resistant. And in my mind, I thought, oh, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. There's no reason. I still did it because there was some power that was was pushing me along, that had my back, was pushing me along because I was really looking for an answer. I was really searching for, um, for, for help, for relief, for serenity. Um, and now, you know, I have it and it's just, it's amazing and kind of incredulous sometimes. And, um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world. And the last thing I want to say is when I first came in the room and I kept hearing people say, I'm a grateful compulsive overeater. I was like, never, never will I be grateful for being a compulsive overeater. But the truth of the matter is if I wasn't, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be as happy as I am, despite, you know, depressive thoughts and whatever, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in this place today. So, um, that is what I have to share. And that's my time. Uh, so thank you so much for allowing me to be of service. And I hope that something in my story was useful to someone. So thank you. I pass.